Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks, uh, thanks for coming. It's a great pleasure to, to, to have you here. Uh, my name is Pierluigi Mancarella. I'm chair of electrical power systems here at the University of Melbourne. I'm also the uh, program leader for energy systems in the Melbourne uh, Energy Institute. So, no, welcome. Very, very happy to see you, see you here. But before I go on, let me acknowledge uh, the traditional owners of the land in which the event is taking place, the land of the Wurundjeri, and pay respect to the elders and families. Now, this, is, this event uh, is uh, uh, part of a, of a series uh, that is organized through the partnership between the Melbourne Energy Institute and the Grata Institute. So today's topic is quite exciting, yes, as, as, as you've seen. It, the, the title is, it's time for a longer term view on delivering the great energy transition. And we believe it's really time and we look forward to, to hearing all our, our distinguished speakers and panelists uh, uh, discussing the topic. The moderator tonight is Madeleine Morris, Madeleine is a Melbourne-based reporter for uh, ABC Television 730. And uh, I, I give the word to Madeleine. And thank you very much and welcome again. Thanks very much, Pierluigi. And um, welcome to all of you. And well done on making it from the change of venue. You all read your emails. Excellent. And uh, nice to see you all sitting there in like students behind those desks, ready to take lots of copious notes. Um, I imagine it's probably a throwback for some of you. Uh, I am uh, Madeleine Morris, as Pierluigi said, I'm a reporter for 7.30 at uh, the ABC, and as of Monday, I'll be the finance presenter on ABC News Breakfast. I'm moving to a new job. So um, if any of you have got any good yarns, come and see me afterwards. I'll be pleased to hear them. Um, I've spent uh, a lot of years working with Tony um, on stories on and off, um, and I'm very aware of his the immense respect that he commands here and um, the work of Grattan in this very important area of energy. And uh, as most of you who are here will be aware, there probably is um, arguably no more pressing public policy issue at this time um, than how we deal with energy futures and climate change and the energy transitions that are inevitably going to happen over the next couple of decades. Um, I mean, every day there's some sort of story uh, about energy crisis or problems. I mean, yesterday we had a, a story out looking, saying that the investment in renewables was at its lowest level for two years. There was an excellent piece, um, which some of you may have seen this morning in the Financial Review by Matthew Warren, sort of sounding the alarm yet again. So um, in this environment of sort of seeming, seeming paralysis, if you, if you like, policy paralysis, um, Grattan brought together industry leaders and experts for a two-day meeting, um, and Tony locked up the room and said, you can't go, you can't get out until you've found a solution. And so they uh, all put their heads together, and they, the resulting work is a paper which is published by Grattan last week called Australia's Energy Transition, a Blueprint for Success. Uh, and that is going to form the basis of what we're talking about this evening, um, but we also have some other distinguished panellists from the energy area to speak uh, to their experience and, and some of their areas of expertise as well. Um, 
Yes, thank you for reminding me. If you could put your mobiles onto silent, that would be lovely. Thank you very much. Um, and so just a, a, how this evening's going to work, we're going to have a 10-minute presentation from each of the panellists or, or thereabouts. Then we'll have a quick few questions from me. But I'm sure that many of you in the room will have far better questions than I can come up with. So we'll try and get to your questions as soon as we can. We've got some roving microphones. So you'll have to bear with us while we while our uh, microphone holders make the sprint up and down the stairs, but do bear with us. So just to introduce our um, distinguished panellists this evening, so immediately to my left is Tony Wood, of course. Tony's been Energy Program Director at Grattan since 2011. He worked at Origin Energy in senior executive roles for many years prior to that. He was also the Program Director of Clean Energy Projects at the Clinton Foundation. Next to him, we have Chloe, Chloe Munro, beg your pardon. Uh, she has extensive experience in the public and private sectors in energy, infrastructure, and natural resources. She's currently professorial fellow at Monash University, chair of the Impact, I've got to read my notes because she's got so many jobs, chair of the Impact Investment Group Solar Income Fund and Solar Assets Fund and of the Energy Transition Hub Strategic Advisory Panel. She's also got a few arts interests as well, but now she's just showing off. And then we also have Richard Bolt. He is the Vice President of Strategy and Innovation at Swinburne University of Technology. Richard has had a diverse career in public service, policy research, public advocacy and engineering. He led three Victorian State Departments under five premiers. So give him a few drinks and ask him some questions there. Uh, and he's also served on national committees advising ministerial councils on energy, agriculture, education, transport, and resources. So uh, a few brains in the room this evening. Uh, Tony, I'll, I'll, I'll pass over to you straight away because um, the basis of what, the reason that we're gathered here today is this new paper which is you've authored from Grattan on the basis of this work with these experts that you got together, um, which has some really important recommendations and, and a blueprint. So. Talk us through that. Well, thanks, Madeline, and good evening. And um, for those of you who, dropped, who didn't drop breadcrumbs, good luck getting home. Um, we're doing something a bit unusual tonight, and it's not the fact that you've got someone from Grattan without PowerPoint presentations and charts. Um, we're doing something which is a little different in the sense that we're taking a longer-term view of Australia's energy future, and in particular, what that vision looks like and how it needs to be realised, and what do we need to be doing now to make sure it is realised. Now, you'll get some different perspectives and emphasis from the three of us this evening. Chloe and Richard were at that event that um, Madeline talked about, and Richard uh, contributed um, largely, or probably as much, at least as much as I did, to the authorship of the paper, as did Tim Orton from Renaus Consulting, who can't be with us this evening. So, I'm going to cover a little bit about the background of what this paper is about and some of the key recommendations and, and leave it to you if those of you hadn't to read that paper which is on the website. It starts with, and we, to some extent, one thing we did agree with, although there was a lot of debate around other issues at this gathering, that Australia, one thing I guess is bloody obvious, has been an energy superpower for 100 years. In fact, it's just, it's about... About 100 years since, uh, someone told me the other day, since the SECV started, um, I don't think anybody here was around for that event. Um, 1894 was when the first electricity from a central point apparently was, developed, was, was delivered in, in Melbourne. It was a coal-fired power station. Coal came from New South Wales, but we don't talk about that anymore. What we are now looking at is a situation in which our fossil fuel advantage is seriously going, is it threat? Because 
emissions globally and in Australia will and should go to near zero in the coming decades. And that has some very important consequences. If we ignore that challenge, the challenge being to achieve that at low cost and maintaining reliability, then we'll do that at our peril. On the other side of it, Australia has enormous resources of renewable energy, wind and solar in particular, and we could easily be, if we get it right, an energy superpower in the next century. And so it's that challenge that I think we're talking about this evening, because it's that opportunity we need to grasp if we've got the intent. What it's going to require, of course, is several decades of probably unprecedented investment since the beginning of that energy system over 100 years ago. And that's going to require collaboration and agreement across a whole range of things. But in particular, we're going to see changes, most of which may not be visible over the coming decades, but it will fundamentally change the way we build, heat, cool our homes, the way we make our products, move those products around, the way we transport energy, the way we export energy, all will change very, very significantly, and that's not without consequences. And doing all that while maintaining reliability and keeping the prices down is going to be the challenge. It's going to require collaboration and serious work from governments, from the energy agencies, and from industry. The bad news is that one of the reasons we are where we are now is because we haven't had the right answers from government agencies and the energy industries. We've seen all sorts of problems. We have seen lots of renewable energy built. We've also seen ad hoc policies, some start, some go. We've seen partial decarbonisation. We've seen compromised reliability. And you would be as aware as I am as many of the problems we've seen over that period of time. When things happen like that, when you get high prices, when you get problems of reliability, governments have to intervene. It's not a question of whether governments should. They must intervene because that's their job as politicians, as elected politicians. It's how they do it that becomes important. And certainly in my view, in many cases, what, we've seen is, what we see is ad hoc intervention, which provides initial, it provides initial respite. But in many cases, it makes things worse in the longer term. So when governments start to directly go past the market structure, where they go past their agencies, invest directly, support renewable energy projects directly, subsidise specific technologies, and even threaten companies with big stick legislation, then look out, because we're going to have some problems, if not in the short term, certainly in the long term. So I want to talk a little bit about the long term and some of the three recommendations that came out of the, the, the work that we mentioned before and the paper to which Madeline referred. Three recommendations. And these are about how do we build the foundations of the energy system that is going to make the transition to a low emissions future within only a few decades. The first of these is almost obvious. We certainly, from a Grattan perspective, spoken about it many times, and that is we need to integrate energy and climate policy. That has to be beyond electricity. It has to include transport, it has to include export energy, and it has to include industrial energy. As we all know, attempts at economy-wide mechanisms to achieve an economy-wide emissions target have all failed. Australia probably holds the record for abandoning more climate policy than just about any other country in the world. We are very good at that. Um, almost as good as we are at cricket, I expect. The Commonwealth today does not have an objective to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in any sort of consistent way. 
It has three reasons for that. It says that its current target is perfectly fine, that it will achieve that target at a canter, and we don't need any more policies for electricity because it's going to achieve its proportionate share of the current target anyway. There's a problem with each of those, even if you could argue that the third one is correct. And that is that the target isn't enough because it will be revised in the, next, in the coming years, whatever government we have in Canberra. We are not on track to achieve that target with the current policies. And if we are to have a lowest cost way of achieving emissions reduction, electricity will have to be more than its proportionate share. So in that sense, we've got a problem. And it's interesting that the states and territories don't all agree with the Commonwealth on this issue. Now, they may not agree precisely themselves, but if they could get together and they decided to introduce some form of national policy on emissions reduction, maybe, even if it's less desirable, that would actually be the best interest of everybody, including the Commonwealth. Second issue is that the current Australian Energy Market Agreement needs to be revised. Now, that's a bit of a, why on earth would you want to talk about something as exciting as an Australian Energy Market Agreement? Because it goes to the fundamental legislative structure about the way the system works. The fundamental structure that sets out how legislation in the energy industry is created, the way it's implemented, and the way it's supposed to be implemented and uh, operationalised. Now, the problem is it's not working. The Commonwealth bypasses it by looking to introduce, with certain powers of course, impose caps on electricity prices, support by direct um, uh, investment, um, and also to underwrite investment in uh, generation. The states, on the other hand, unilaterally go and introduce renewable energy targets, with little, if any, in my view, consideration for the consequences in terms of integration of that renewable energy into the system. So we need a revised agreement in which sets out and re-emphasises the roles of the Commonwealth, the roles of the states and the roles of the agencies in how this really should work. Governments, of course, do have a key role in the way policies are set out, and governments have a role in supporting R&D through agencies like the Australian Renewable Energy um, Agency and so forth. But the criteria for which governments intervene when they do need to intervene are equally important. Not just those formal ones, but the informal ones. So, for example, what I mean by that is when things go wrong and governments need to intervene, are there ways they could do it which would be less damaging than some of the things we've already seen? And specifically, one of the things we need is an agreement, recognition and agreement that when individual jurisdictions, state or territory or commonwealth, look to introduce something unilaterally, that they have that first reviewed by an independent agency to understand what the implications might be. The third of the recommendations we developed in terms of what has to be done relates to the energy agencies to which I referred before. Now, we actually have four at the moment, but broadly there have been three for a long time. One is the commission, the energy commission, which sets the rules, the regulator that enforces the rules, and the market operator that operates the system. We also have a thing called the Energy Security Board, which is the... Um, Kerry Schott's not here, so I can say this. She's the school teacher who tries to keep the other children under good behaviour. Unfortunately, I suspect she's having trouble with that job just at the moment. Now, the problem with this grouping is not that the structure's wrong. I think the structure is actually probably as good as you're going to get. I mean, you could play around with structures, but you may not change very much for the good. The problem has emerged that when things were relatively slow, relatively, and when the issues were relatively narrow, inside those three boxes, it didn't matter all that much. 
if they were relatively re uh, reactive rather than proactive, and it didn't matter so much if they didn't collaborate all that much together because collaboration wasn't necessary. That's all changed. And that is where the problems arise. And in particular, when we do need collaboration on strategic issues, it's been hard to get. So we think that the remits for those agencies should be strengthened to place more emphasis on emerging issues and on the emerging challenges than we've seen in the past. And in particular, they should be given joint statutory obligation, joint statutory obligation to collaborate on common objectives, in particular when they're providing strategic advice to the government. Now, there's different ways you can do that, and if the need for the Energy Security Board is one of those, then I don't mind, but we should codify and formalise that role rather than have it the way it is today. So they're the three things. We need to get moving, and we need to do that, I think, in the term of this Commonwealth Government, because the full journey to this near, this near zero emissions future we're talking about will take decades of serious strategic and collaborative action between industry and government, and during that journey, the needs of the public and communities in reliable, affordable power is going to be absolutely paramount. For the last decade, at least, people have been promised lower prices, and what have they got? Higher prices. And in addition to that, reliability has been compromised. And the people who felt that most are vulnerable communities, and the people who felt that most is businesses as well. And the gap between the promise and the re reality is what's opened up an enormous lack of trust between consumers and the energy agencies. Now, this may sound like a pretty ambitious reform agenda, and it probably is given the inaction of the last decade. But it's doable, and every year of prevarication, every year of prevarication just adds to the urgency and need for essential reforms so that we can deliver and achieve that journey on a low emission future that we need. Thank you. Thank you. Very um, ambitious, as you say, uh, excuse me, aims laid out there in that paper. Um, and very um, macro, I think. Richard, we're going to come to you now just to narrow in down a little bit on some of those things. And we wanted to start off talking about um, the en energy mix that you see forming a part of this large-scale transformation. Well, thank you. Thank you, Madeline. Thank you, everyone, uh, for the opportunity to talk. Uh, I have to just quickly say that uh, on the question of whether anyone here was around when the SEC, SECV was formed, my true confession is I actually came to Victoria to work for the SECV. I lasted two years, and that was aversion therapy and certainly pro-carbon abatement therapy, uh, so I hope you won't boo me as I go through my presentation. I would also note that uh, Ross Garno is in the room, uh, and I think he may have been around at the time the SEC <laughs> But he'll speak for himself. Uh, look, yes, I'll elaborate on the energy mix uh, that is in the paper for those that have read it, uh, don't have to have read it, and, and, uh, and it's not an energy mix which we are putting forward as a forecast, but more as a plausible uh, path to zero. Now, that's actually, in a sense, a good news story because I've been around uh, this subject for many, many years, and when uh, carbon policy was an infant, we really focused only on the worst of the emissions in the electricity sector and more or less threw our hands up in the air about the rest of it because the, uh, the options weren't clear. We now really do have a more plausible path to zero. I'll go to that. Um, I'll explain why the task of getting there is an enormous challenge of collaboration, coordination uh, and of planning by and on behalf of governments, but in total partnership with uh, industry and communities. 
Um, and uh, I'll also offer a few, a few views, and in my case they have changed on the kind of policy tools that might be required, because when most people think of carbon policy, they think of carbon pricing. And I helped design a carbon pricing scheme that almost, we almost have in law now, uh, but I'm not there anymore. So let's start with a plausible path. So um, in the sort of renewables and, uh, and uh, coal and, and uh, camp, in these, in these divisions that we've seen in the carbon wars, I think even if you didn't believe in climate change and uh, as an issue, you would still say that in the long run the future must be renewables. And that's because, very obviously, we're using fossil energy at a far faster rate than nature's making them. And at one point, that will make them very expensive to extract. Uh, we're not going to run out part of the Club of Rome, but the cost will become at some point prohibitive and uncompetitive. Uh, what climate change does is provide a very obvious urgency and time frame for doing something about that. As Tony said, if the future is renewables, what's going to be the engine of that? It's wind and solar. We've gone through a huge range of options, uh, geothermal, biomass, tidal and, and, uh, and uh, wave power, and for a variety of reasons, they will play almost no role or a marginal role in a global energy system that is zero emissions. Um, and I'll make these assertions, very happy, of course, to have the debates. Um, but as is often not really well understood unless you study the charts, the gap between supply and demand, minute by minute, when you've got a wind and solar system uh, in, a, in an industrial economy that relies on very, very reliable power, uh, is enormous, highly volatile, and the gap needs to be filled with something that is very, very up to the task. And currently, there is really no zero emissions source that will do that for us. Um, it's batteries, wonderful idea, they'll give us minutes, maybe hours, uh, but beyond that the cost is just too prohibitive. Uh, and when it comes to pumped hydro, very costly and also very limited as to where you can do it. And another aspect of this, which is leveraging off Tony, or departing from Tony's point, we have to think about more than just electricity and gas in the traditional forms. And when you do, you, think of, you have to think about other energy carriers that will do that job of balancing our grid in, with all of these fluctuations and do other tasks besides. Transport, we are now seeing hydrogen trucks, uh, and hydrogen, by the way, I should have said, that's the carrier that I think has the most, and many think, has the most prospect of, in a sense, closing the deal on zero emissions, right? So uh, it can be used um, on, in most uh, estimations, it will be usable in conventional power stations uh, to replace gas uh, and then produce a very variable output to balance our system, big tick. It will, it's already being trialled in trucks and buses uh, and in trains in the Northern Hemisphere in various places. Uh, it's got application potentially in shipping. Uh, aircraft is still an issue. Uh, and in cars, I know there are battery vehicles. Everyone thinks that electric, battery electric vehicles are the big way to the future, to future zero in transport. Of course, they'll play a role, but it won't help us too much with the heavy and long distance side, and that's where hydrogen will come in. Um, it is, uh, so hydrogen balance the grid uh, will also provide direct heat. It's also an export commodity. We've got to think not only across all these sectors, but we've got to think about a global economy where there are big imbalances between the ability of some countries to sustain a particular population and economic activity uh, renewably and others where the resources are lower and the population is much higher. As Tony said, an energy superpower is an option for Australia leveraging its renewable resources and exporting hydrogen. 
Now, we can make hydrogen from renewable electricity, or from any electricity, but particularly when there's enough renewable power to generate a real surplus above the direct uses of that power, then we've got the opportunity to generate electricity, uh, hydrogen on top of that, which can both balance the grid and, uh, and uh, once uh, we even go that surplus further, meet these other uses. But this is going to take a long time and a lot of investment. Uh, it is urgent, it is also hard. And to do, and we're talking here industrial scale transformations. Um, I'm very admiring of solar panels on people's roofs, but I would put it to you that the, the attitude that that's in a sense spawned is that future energy will be a cottage industry. Well, it won't be. It'll be a huge industrial endeavour with massive investments in new port facilities, shipping, electrolyzers, obviously solar and wind power stations, uh, on a scale which dwarfs what we currently do here and overseas. And so um, to get there being a long, long journey, we're going to need a long, long bridge to it. And that bridge will essentially be provided by fossil energy used in increasingly emissions-friendly ways and eventually uh, exiting stage left uh, when renewables takes over the full task. That's the scenario we paint in the paper. Very happy to have the debate. What does that start with? It's gas-fired power to balance the grid and so renewables can come in uh, and increasingly uh, uh, serve our electricity needs while maintaining the reliability of our supply. Now, there is an issue with gas prices, and we can uh, discuss that one later on, but I just don't see what else is going to make that possible. Uh, coal will exit stage left. Again, coal-fired power stations of the conventional kind will be displaced by this very combination of renewables and gas-fired power. They will be the antidote to coal. They will do the job at a much lower emissions intensity, even though you're still burning gas and gas has CO2 implications. Nonetheless, it'll be a hell of a lot better, and particularly than coal-fired power stations here. And eventually hydrogen will displace the gas and will be at that zero point I mentioned. Now, coal has another use, potentially. Potentially. And that use could be very significant. Combined with carbon capture and storage, it can make hydrogen at very low emissions out, uh, outputs which will give that hydrogen economy that I mentioned before a kickstart at relatively low prices, we think. Uh, there's already a half a billion dollar pilot project uh, which is underway here in Victoria, Japan, Australia uh, exercise, and the people running that in the Victorian government are here. Uh, and that is one of many potential applications of coal in a much more emissions-friendly way to build that bridge to a fully renewable future. That essentially is the picture we paint. Yes, there's scope for nuclear. There's scope for certainly, well, there's nuclear now. There's nuclear uh, in many parts of the world. And that's not just suddenly going to be switched off. It's not necessarily going to grow that fast, although it may still grow. And that's potentially, for those countries, a, a, a zero emissions application or, or source of energy. Unlikely to be one here, I would argue, because we're just too late to the party. You know, we're going into the renewable space so quickly uh, that uh, it's just hard to see that it's going to be uh, a, a particularly productive investment to take a, a non-nuclear economy um, up the learning curve, up all of the community concerns into that space seems very, very unlikely. Now, when you paint such a picture of change, you're talking, as I said earlier, a major innovation and investment task. It's, it's very large indeed. Not beyond us. No need to put the glasses down and just hide in a corner and hope that uh, uh, you, you know uh, climate change doesn't take you with it. Um, it's actually more a case of a very steady, long-term, decades-long, persistent, strategic 
um, uh, pathway that has to be forged by governments in league with their communities, in league with their industries to get there. It's really of an unprecedented scale and complexity and duration, I would argue, of a, of a, of a deliberately engineered transition from one production system to another. Rarely does that happen that way because we don't, we, we didn't set out to have an industrial revolution with a goal in mind of a certain level of output. Uh, the markets and the technologies and the communities and the industrialists, they made it all happen and, the, and of course the workforces, uh, we got there. We didn't set out specifically with that goal in mind. This time we're doing it. It's a big job. Um, it, you know, because power will increasingly have to supply transport and those other uses and exports as well as I said, uh, as well as station uses, as I said before, we have ourselves a need to take out all of the coal-fired power while actually increasing, potentially increasing the total output of electricity. Uh, and the coordination challenge in exiting some power while bringing much more in is no small task because you're taking out these big lumps of power and you want to make sure what you replace them with is going to be there in time, is going to work in combination, is going to keep the lights on and maintain public confidence. And under the old SECV, with its many, many draw, uh, uh, shortcomings and, uh, and uh, difficulties, the one thing you could have had is a completely engineered, centrally planned system. I don't advocate that. I don't think, well, we're, we're, none of us want to go back there. But we will need more central coordination of the various contributions to that rebuilding task that the private sector will throw up. It's interactive, it's, it's, uh, it, it ought to be collaborative, it certainly should take the best economic value and use market forces to the greatest extent, but it does need to be coordinated. There needs to be some supervision of this extraordinary transition. Richard, so that's about, you've been speaking for about 10 minutes there, I'm just mindful of trying to get through to um, everyone. Is, it, I'm almost done. Finish, finish off there. I'm almost done. So I've got, so a, I've got a killer make... question for Chloe. I'm um, <laughs> arising yeah, yeah. from what you have to say. <laughs> <You ready? laughs> so the point I wanted to make is the agencies that do all of this need to be retasked. The governments that control them need to, to take the lead in that. They need to set the parameters for energy decarbonisation. Uh, they need to set the systems up for the planning and coordination I mentioned before. And they need to do that with a range of tools that can make that task get done in, a, in an adaptive way. This is not some set and forget policy exercise when you set up a carbon market and you just hope that it works over a period of 50 years. This is a long adaptive journey and what we need is the application of, of the tools of trade, of regulation, as I said before, of planning, of coordination and of, um, uh, of seed funding of new infrastructure and so on that I think uh, is a more adaptive and a more selective and a more manageable way to get us through this extraordinary long transition. So my thinking has changed a lot on the sort of policy levers that will get us from A to B, because B is a long, long way away in so many respects. And I'll leave it there. Oh, yeah, uh, and um, I, it's, re it's really, that's a great point to end on, I think, from you, Richard, because what you're la laying out there is, we talk a lot about the invisible hand. Um, what you're talking about there is not only a visible hand, but like a really big, massive hand yep. that is going that is going to that is going to need to be. No, no, no I'm not talking big, massive. No, I'm, not. I'm talking. That's what it sounds like. I'm talking a big social project with government at the centre, not yeah. sitting like some towering monolith over it all uh, and dictating terms. This is going to be a conversation and a, a collaborative project involving communities that are going to be impacted by the closure of facilities or have to see new facilities. It's going to require industry and particularly the energy industry to, uh, to put up solutions. 
that governments on their own will never be able to guess. Uh, its job is to integrate, facilitate, collaborate. It is not to be a behemoth. Um, and, and, uh, and I think if it were, then we'd be back in the days of SECB, yeah, and sure. I think we'd be in a very bad space. I sure. think we're pretty we're all agreed on this point. You don't, you don't want to go really back to the... Just how much additional power needs to be held in some central place to ensure that the whole that we get out of this is greater than the sum of the parts. Well, I, I, Chloe, I think that that leads on to what you were, you were going to talk about. Yeah. One of my favourite phrases. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, my question, I suppose, to you initially um, to, to get you there was how, how, much, how interventionist do you think um, when this project actually needs to be or are you on board with this idea of, of it needing to come from everyone working together towards a, a common goal which seems to coagulate almost organically? Well, yes. And I, I, I think, I mean, my starting point is really this is about the theory of action. And um, when we look at the electricity market, as the Finkel Review did, and I think you all know I was one of the Finkel Review panelists, so that came up with a blueprint for the future of the national electricity market. And we're now talking about a blueprint for success at a much more macro level, as you said, across all of energy. But when I think about the energy market and, and the role of the market and the role of government, the fact is that the big markets, the, where the real power is relative to this, are the global capital markets and increasingly the market for data. So you've got, you know, when you think about the, the degree of government intervention, it's not really about the government sort of centrally controlling, dictating everything. It's about government playing its proper function, which, and I, you know, I, I went to the trouble of looking up what the dictionary says government, the word gov governing means, because I thought, well, actually, why we need a new Australian energy market agreement between the governments in our federation is partly to restate that. What is the role of government? And, you know, um, governments are there to, um, I can't find it now, um, but, you know, to control and direct. And the point is that they're doing that in the public interest. So um, when I think about the current governance arrangements and the current Australian energy market agreements and the way the objective is stated, I see all sorts of breakdowns in terms of the theory, or limitations in the theory of action. It's a, based on a very, very narrow view, and, I, and we've almost got to this point where we, you know, there's, there's this belief that within this narrowly defined market that's operated by the market operator, the price signal on its own, for energy on its own, uh, it's going to be sufficient to bring forward long-term investment in assets which will deliver all the qualitative things that we also need to live through the transition. And then we've put in some other price signals that are very strongly uh, supported. I mean, they haven't, it hasn't just been the price signals that's driven the, the, the uh, rapid uh, introduction of renewables, but it's been very facilitative of that. And we haven't had the signals for the other bits that go alongside it. So we've had, we've had a very narrow view, theory of action, about how a price signal can drive um, something that's, that's, that's beneficial for the community. And then when you actually look at the wording of the national energy objective, there's actually three different versions of it, but the basic version says, um, you know, that it's, it's to operate, um, it's about efficient investment in and operation of energy services in the long-term interest of consumers with respect to blah, 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 blah. And when I look at each of those things, I think that is completely inadequate. 
First of all, it's not just about consumers. It is quite clear from the political economy of this that it, the concerns are not just those of consumers. There are concerns about the, the jobs of people who's, who's, who, who depend on the production of energy services, the jobs of people who, uh, who depend on uh, businesses that are consumers of services. So it's actually broader than, you know, you could maybe sort of draw a line of sight back to consumers, but it's more than consumers. And the interests are not just the interests in terms of price, reliability, security. The interests are also, you know, not least in terms of the environmental impact of what we're doing and the social impact of change. So, you know, that, that is how you in, uh, express that objective and how you then interpret it in a theory of action has a huge, huge impact on um, how government says what it expects of markets and it decides whether or not to intervene directly by setting standards or regulating in some other way or you know, underwriting what has become such a highly risky class of investment that uh, it's unlikely we'll get that in the time frames that we need because there's so much uncertainty. So you know, that's one example. Then it talks about long-term interests. Well, it happens about, I mean, it, for most, most of us, we are not going to totally subjugate our short-term interests to our long-term interests. It's true. I've been there. You will put up with the awful side effects of chemotherapy because you are likely to live longer having done it. But up to a point, you don't do that. You say, no, actually, I want it now. And, and this, you know, this price is too high to pay. And that's what's happening right now. You know, people say, you know, the adjustment... So your economic model, in a you know, very simple manner, it puts all these things in and there's an adjustment and people move around and jobs, jobs go away in this sector of the economy and they arise in the other side. But it's not the same people who get the new jobs. So those people who are losing the old jobs are pretty, you know, they're not going to buy into that. It's not the people getting the chemo who are living longer. That's right. <laughs> well, quite possibly not. <laughs> um, and it's... Sorry, and, and, so not the, you know what I no, mean? No, no, exactly. People, exactly. Different, so, different so the, people the impacts are not evenly distributed. And there's this terrible averaging. So we have a reliability standard. You know, reliability is one of the big issues that's very hot at the moment in the electricity. A reliability standard that just averages across all consumers in the whole, of, whole of, the, of, of the region across the whole year. Well, that actually doesn't cut it when it comes to the moment, the short-term moment, when the temperatures, as you know, Audrey Zibelman, CEO of market operators, all saying the temperatures have been up in the 40s for three days in a row, and there you are in an apartment, and the power goes off, and you can't get out, and you can't get water, and you don't have, you know... You don't have double glazing and your air conditioning doesn't run. And, and, and that's just not a tolerable short-term impact. So this thing, long-term interests of consumers, you have to be very sophisticated about how you understand that. So it's not just consumers, it's not just long-term. And then the idea that the efficient investment in and operation of is going to directly flow into the interests of consumers, that's a theory of action which is quite questionable too, or at least there's limitations to how, how well that transmission mechanism works, and particularly this question about investment. So we've had this elision, I think, which happens all the time, which suddenly the interests of consumers are totally represented by the interests of investors. So we have, you know, when we have consultation, the people who dominate the consultation are really investors. They really are, and they are, and, and it's worse, they're actually the sunk investors, so it's pretty hard to hear the new, new investors who might invest in the new stuff, because they're, you know, they're, they're not even there yet. So you have this domination of a particular theory about how investment, and I mean, I'm a great believer, look, I'm, I'm, obviously I'm involved in investment, I'm hugely in favour of markets, I'm hugely in favour of investments, but you have to be careful about the expectations that you place on how that's going to work, and what we're seeing is that in this transition, there are so many variables that the risk-return 
uh, trade-off, it's, it's very, very hard for investors to get to grips with that. They see more risk. They're actually seeing diminished returns. You know, bond rates are all times low. It's hard for them to make that decision at the pace that we need. And, and uh, so that's a sense sometimes government can just do a bit of simplifying. And it can say, well, I know planning used to be a dirty word, but maybe we did a bit of planning. We just said, well, it looks like these are, these are, these are good, facilitative, least regrets investment. Let's just procure them. And let's not just go into this incredibly elaborate model, um, which is currently being worked on, that uh, says, well, you know, you can procure transmission by having tradable transmission hedges and all that. And you think, really? <laughs> really? Uh, maybe you just need to make it a bit simpler and not be so obsessed about making sure that an inefficient investment doesn't happen at all costs. I mean, this is... So there's lots of things, I think, it, that, that... And so to me, the, the, the merit of this blueprint is that although there's still a lot of disagreement, I think, in the rooms about, you know, the detail and what the governance arrangements need to be, the idea that we actually have to step back a bit and say, well, the Finkel Review, which, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of, and it's, um, you know, it is the blueprint and it is being acted on, uh, is really about deferred maintenance. It's about fixing up some of the problems that we've had. And, um, you know, very pragmatic, accepted a lot of the limitations, but we, all, we, we can't just be bound by that. And you now I was reminded um, last night that I, I uh, got into the habit of saying the best policy is the one you can have. This was in the context of climate policy. And I can't believe that. It's truly pragmatic. But there is a point where you have to say, well, let's just not lose sight of the long-term purpose. Yes, let's not let, have the perfect being the enemy of the good, but let's also not, not have the past being the enemy of the future. We actually need to be able to, I think, to step back. So these, this focus on the governance and the framing of what we want to achieve, what the role of government is, and what the role of government is relative to the role of markets, and how then the institutions that are empowered by government uh, deliver on that, and what the, what, the, you know, what the structural of those institutions are and how they're held accountable, all of that, I think, is worthy of really a serious rethink and then it will need some very strong advocacy uh, to bring that into reality. And, and, and uh, you know, I, I really think this is, this is the time to do this. We'll get through the implementation of the Finkel Review recommendations and some of the new work the Energy Security Board's initiative, but it won't have got to this, you know, that ju just the scale and the scope of the transition that we really need to get hold of right now. So I'm sure that the room will have some excellent and, and very specific questions, but I'll just ask the dumb journalist question because I basically um, spend all of my day reporting on, uh, a lot of my day reporting on politics and how politics gets in the way of things actually happening and then the practicalities of this. And so the idea of a long-term, large-scale collaborative project is great. Within the current cl political climate, how does that happen at a realistic level? Richard, did you have It's not a dumb question at all. It's a question I expected to get first up because it <laughs> seems to talk about, to call for this huge collaboration seems like the ultimate naive statement that you could make given our current political practice and climate. It's, it's just, the way it will happen is if enough people surrounding government sites should happen, and, and that means the messages, I guess, in the paper, from my point of view, are directed much more 
at those people than they are at governments directly at this stage at least. I think that there is, this is not going to be a quick road home, but I, I guess in, in certain settings you see crises eliciting unity in government and with communities. Uh, this is one of those very difficult situations where the crisis is a very long one and the unity has to last a long time. Um, and I just, all we can say is there is no shortcut to governments actually playing a very important but by no means exclusive role in making it happen. So it's extremely unrealistic and it's the only thing we can do. That's all I can say to you. Yeah, look, I, I mean, this is, this is a political question. I, you know, I'm always sort of slightly entertained when people say, oh, if only you could take the politics out of water, if only you could take the politics out. I mean, this is a fundamental political question. And what we really mean is if only you could take the short-term partisan politics out of this because, you know, that, that, that is corrosive. And, and, you know, personally, I find it quite distressing. But, you know, that doesn't mean you have to be fatalistic about uh, the, and, and just then assume governments are utterly incapable of um, dealing with big and important things because, in fact, they do it all the time. And I do, I do agree with Richard. A lot of it's about, well, you know, what interests do governments listen to and why? On this matter, I mean, one of the very important things I think we shouldn't lose sight of is that there is an emerging consensus that's one way or the other, the globe needs to get to net zero by 2050, and Australia will need to do that too, because otherwise we will be subject to all sorts of sanctions in the global economy. Gradually, people will come around to that. We're seeing this in business. The Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures has, you know, you can really see the impact. Of, you know, even Whitehaven Coal is responding to that, even though they, you know, they're saying it'll all be fine and, uh, for them. But, you know, they're not immune to this. So business is, is moving in that direction. State governments, you know, as Tony observed, mostly have signed up to something along the lines of that. All sorts of other institutions have. So just because right now the, the Australian government, um, which is only in some ways a bit player in this, but still very important, and the Australian government is finding it very difficult to get to grips to that, doesn't mean to say that's a permanent condition. And, and as you say, there are... Governments do make big and important decisions all the time. I mean, if you look at um, national security policy, for example, there's general bipartisan um, agreement on that. Generally, foreign policy, there's general bipartisan agreement on that. So, Tony, what is it about this particular area of policy that makes it just so hard to get any sort of agreement? And do you say see a way forward? And then we'll open it up to questions. So please get your questions ready. I guess the, <clears throat> the two somewhat insidious things to me that have made this so hard, and there's a lot of other things which are in common with other hard challenges. One is that, um, partly what Chloe said, and the, we have in Australia, and Australia is a little unusual, like in some ways very unusual globally in this issue, and that is that we do have a federal system, sometimes it's called cooperative federalism, it tends to operate the opposite way around, but uncooperative federalism. But we do have that system, and it's more than just the, in other sectors of the economy. In the energy system, the energy ministers together determine, in theory, what the policy should be through that market agreement I mentioned before, and the legislation is all done together. We don't see that in other parts of the economy, and so the need, it's actually almost a legislative requirement they should be working together. And that makes it harder when you've got governments with conflicts of interest, because you've got governments who own some of this sector, who's clearly are interested in their treasuries and how to make money. So that makes it even harder. And it's not just the states. The Commonwealth owns one of the biggest integrated energy companies in the country now in Snowy Hydro. 
that's one thing. And the second one is, has really seriously been the, what Richard called the climate wars, and that is that it became a complete political talisman for the internal machinations of the coalition parties. And I don't, you know, there's no way, I don't think you can move away from that. It became, and it still hasn't gone. I mean, right now, as far as I can see, the system is captured by a small number of people in the federal coalition. They are there, they're going to be there for a while. And that's why I suggested that it's very hard to see how the coalition can move where they are today. And therefore, I've got some optimism on the other side. I've also got some optimism, by the way, Madeline. Right now, you know, we could have some nasty things go wrong. I mean, if those two power stations in Victoria don't get online by Christmas time and we have the sort of situations we had last Christmas and something else goes wrong, we could easily have a tough time this coming summer. But more likely, if you listen to the engineers, um, there's probably some of them in the room that may have had, this is a law lecture, so I thought engineering. But, the, you know, most likely we will get through this summer. Most likely AEMO will purchase the necessary protections to get us through. Most likely the waves of renewables that are coming into the system we know about will bring price, start to bring prices down. And most likely we'll get that, and emissions in the electricity sector are coming down. So there's actually some sources of optimism there. And I think the combination of that together with the, the, the issue that Chloe mentioned, that we are going to see serious pressure coming, not just from the international community on Australia in the next couple of years, but also from all those other communities. The social consensus that our politicians will hear in their Rotary clubs, in their business clubs, and all that sort of stuff, that's where they'll start to hear it, and that's where I think we'll start to see changes. Um. Who would like to ask a question? Okay, in the uh, fourth row just here. First, you had your first hand up, and uh, you get the... Uh, just as we're going there, just, this reminded me, my dad, who doesn't believe in man-made climate change um, today, told me he is putting in solar panels, and he's getting a generator. I said, oh, you've come around. And he said, oh, no, we had too many blackouts, um, and so we're just going to do it ourselves. And it, just, and it just speaks to people, you know, reliability actually matters, but it may have the effect of switch, getting more people to switch to something like rooftop solar, which is obviously different, um, just purely because of those reliability issues, even though it may not switch his mind on, you know, carbon. Yes, sir. Thank you all very much for your speech, speeches. Um, so I guess one of the... There's been a lot of discussion today about governance, but... From my perspective, it looks like it's definitely an issue, right? But there's also just huge lethargy in the industry itself. So one example would be at smart meter rollouts, they've been, you know, they were systematic in Victoria, they're quite widespread in other states, the take-up has been minimal. Demand response is another. It's perfectly capable, you know, companies are perfectly capable of issuing it in the current market. They don't. So they say, okay, we need a governance solution. It's not necessarily clear that that will deliver the required benefits given that it's not been taken up at the moment. So given the way that the major companies currently operate, given the way that most consumers currently just ignore their energy bill, except for the five minutes of a year when they think about it, how do you see governance being able to force that lethargy kind of out? Because it needs to go out to fix the issues. How do you see us fixing those cultural issues that occur in the market as opposed to the governance issues that mm. override it? I think there's a, Chloe sort of touched upon it, um, this issue of, there's, sometimes there's a, there's a conversation that suggests this is all about the consumer or the customer, this is a consumer-centric revolution. And I'm a bit of a, I suspect, a load on it. I, I just don't think most people don't give a shit about the electricity system much and provide the lights go on. They don't want to have a relationship with an energy company, for God's sake, helping them do this stuff. 
What they want is, is the sort of stuff I think we're talking about. That is an energy system that gives them reliable, affordable power when they want it, etc. Now, what that means, of course, is thinking the people are going to interact with that system in any sort of uh, highly reactive way is away with the fairies. I mean, of course, I suspect there's a number of people in this room who are very interactive with their electricity provider and are on, onto something like PowerShop. It's a great company, by the way, um, and do all sorts of stuff. But that's not the majority of people. So I think we've got to do is set up the systems to enable people to have that. And, and, this, and the, the, the mechanisms that deliver that are going to be partly priced, but partly priced delivered by the new entrants that are coming into the system already, who will themselves provide the incentives that get through those cultural issues. I'm a bit, I mean, demand response, I think, has been a very hard one because electricity in this country has been so damn cheap for so long. It's only become apparently expensive. Now, we are in a situation where, amongst the countries we compared recently around the world, the only country with more electric, expensive electricity is Germany. So we're right, we're right up there in that league. But for most Australians, it's still not a major part of their income. But unfortunately, for some people, it is. But for most people, it's not. And so we haven't yet really engaged with demand response. And there's been some systemic things associated with prevent that. Some of those are starting to change. And maybe we'll see that accelerate in the, in the, in the near future, where you actually have some real incentives for consumers to bypass the system together as into small individuals or as larger organisations to facilitate that demand response. Because I think you're right, there's a, the, the cultural barriers or the other barrier, the non-cost barriers, structural barriers to things like demand response are quite high. And Chloe. Well, I think there's a few things in this. I mean, the first one, it really goes back to what I was saying about theory of action. You know, there's the sort of belief that competition drives innovation and that um, so all these good things will come and it'll be good for consumers. And there's lots of places where that doesn't happen particularly well. One of the places where it doesn't is where there are network effects, where there are, you know, there are strong returns to concentration of something or other, and um, where there's also, you know, large licks of capital invested. So I see exactly the same question. I, I'm, amongst the other things that I do, I'm on the board of the new payments platform in the, in the, in the, in the financial system, which is um, those of you who you have pay ID or use OSCO might be aware of it. It's faster payments. But the point of it is to drive innovation and an opportunity for, really, for fintechs and everybody else to eat the lunches of, of the international cards who make you know, an enormous amount of money out of the transactions that you committed. But there's an incredible inertia around the capital, around the existing institutions, and, and so actually getting to the point where there's enough value in that switch and the way to things that can be captured by the consumer. Um, convenience does a lot. So as soon as it's convenient, you're there. I mean, it's just quite remarkable. Tap and go, everybody does it, and they don't really think about what's sitting behind it. But, um, you know, there is a lot of institutional inertia. So, the, we've been having precisely that conversation about to what extent does, you know, the Reserve Bank designate this and say, well, you know, actually we need a bit of regulation here to drive it along and say you must play and these are mandatory rules. And to what extent can you say, well, if we just sort of describe the future, then eventually it will emerge under its own thing. And this, and, you know, this is, this is a big issue. And I, I, my sense is there is such a, you know, there's this real tension between the decentralization, digitalization that goes on with decarbonization and is about energy, the tension between that and the power of aggregation that gives you, you know, Facebook and the GFC. Um, 
that you know, government actually does have to articulate a little bit about what the pathway is and stimulate some of that, we'll even though get, it may not be efficient. We'll just get um, the microphone here. Yes, sir, you, we'll have you as the next question, and Richard, just a really brief Yeah, very briefly. I just wouldn't be so pessimistic about the companies involved here. Right? So I actually uh, had a lot to do with the smart meter rolled over Victoria being mandated. And it's, it's done a lot of quiet work to save lives and to ensure the much better operation of the, of the distribution systems. The reason you haven't seen price signals is for exactly the reason people, like panellists are saying, is that people don't want them. They don't want the enormous complexity when they've got hugely complex lives to run anyway, of then becoming forensic about the way they manage energy. It has to be served up in a simple way, exactly as Chloe says. And the private sector will respond very sharply to the incentives government gives them, so the leadership is needed to give those signals. Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, Richard seemed to dismiss uh, bioenergy offhand. Uh, Singapore has had a waste energy plant for 30 years. London has got two major ones. Paris has got three within its boundary. Denmark has got 28, 29th one being built. The Germans apparently only put about 4% of their municipal waste into landfill because what isn't recycled gets burnt. My question is why are we not considering waste to energy as part of our long-term programs as both an energy source and as part of the pr problem of disposing of waste? So David Campbell's got an answer here now. <laughs> but, uh, um, I, think, look, that, I think my issue is not that I'm opposed to it and not that it shouldn't happen and not that it doesn't happen, particularly in places that have, for example, very uh, fertile, uh, if you like, uh, you know, if you how can I put this exactly? Denmark grows things more readily than we do. I think that's part of the issue here. Surely we will get some waste to energy. It will not scale in the way that uh, other options will. That's just, I'll just make that assertion to you. It's not wrong. It's just not going to be anywhere near enough. Okay, I, I think you're about to blow your arm off if I don't, if I don't come over to you. <laughs> and, then we'll, if there's, um, and then we'll go to the other side. If there's a woman with a question, I'd love to hear a question from a lady, please. Yeah, it's a real field of vision issue over here, so I had to get your attention. Uh, yeah, just on what Richard said, I mean, um, I, I have been in the bioenergy space and part of the problem is that we're very disaggregated as to where it's produced. We're not concentrated. But that said, the Australian Bioenergy Association has revamped itself over the last couple of years and you're starting to see that come together. I worked on the Sugar R&D Corporation board and we had a major issue with all of this in the sugar industry. So there are some logistical issues that come into play here. But it's a source of energy, it's part of the mix. My question is, um, we're at an energy futures seminar and the discussion's been about the current and the woeful state, we all agree on that. And it's been a discussion, even what the Europeans would call a civil society type discussion. My question is, and our governments reflect our people and our societies, we all know that. So what we've got at the moment is a reflection of us, okay, and the, the absolute, uh, confusion out there in the general public. Um, what happens in the energy future in the future where we're talking about an uncivilised society and some of the real reactions we start to see that we might have seen, say, in wartime, wartime Europe, for example, in, war, in World War II? Examples would be, I'm aware at the moment there's heads of federal government departments and the defence have been planning for the climate emergency we're about to face this summer. You know, the, Richard said that we might need to get to a tipping point sometimes for these things to happen. It's too late when you get to a tipping point. I've worked in agriculture a lot and we've seen too many catastrophes once we get to that tipping point. 
the Office of National Assessment said the most significant refugee threat to Australia, or threat to Australia, security threat, is climate refugees from the Pacific. So how do we deal in the future, what are our scenarios that you can think about for the panel of dealing with an uncivilised society where our rules go out the window? Because okay. we're still working with rules that we sort of developed in the 20th century and we're now 20% of our way into the 21st century and it's a very different century. Okay, a slightly dystopian question. Chloe? Well, I don't Any know answers? where you start with that. No, not, yeah, well, I mean, again, I mean, it comes down to theory action, doesn't it? But I mean, not really, because you've, you've said it yourself. I mean, you get an uncivilised society. So what, what we're talking about is trying to find, of, of, of raising the game so that we can minimise the risk of that. Um, and of course, you know, if you have a Brexit disaster, then you, you can't, there are agencies which are busy, busy planning how many body bags you need to bring out. But so, so, at least they're thinking about it, but I don't think it changes the, you know, the, the benefits of saying, well, what would an orderly... If you get back to the Finkel Review recommendations, an orderly transition, system planning and, some go and, and, and stronger governance, I mean, that is your best insulation against that. So you may have riots. You know, I can remember being in the Brixton riots in London and people thought the sky was falling in. Two days of that, and suddenly it's all back to normal. <laughs> so, so, you know, you can catastrophize catastrophes a bit as well. And, and it just seems to me that by at least managing those energy issues better for the long term, we're lowering the risk of some of those catastrophic events tearing us apart. But if they do, they do. We've got um, not much... Time left, unfortunately. All, all the way up the back, there's um, a lady up in the near back row. Hi, I'm Karis Palmer from Australian Energy Daily. I just was interested in the panel's views on the current suggestion, which I know is not about the future, but is the certainly going, could be a longer-term future thing that um, the government pay coal-fired power stations that, to not be mothballed, to come out of being mothballed when emergencies and other situations are needed as per the German kind of model. And um, I guess given the fact that long-term, um, as you were alluding to, Richard, there may be other uses for coal. Um, just interested in where you think that might end up. Mm. I think the... Um, I was asked to go the Hunter region recently, I'll be up there again next month, to talk about the future of coal with that community. It's a very simple presentation, there isn't one. Um, the quick is it's going to take a while <laughs> for that to play out. And so the trick for those communities and for the government, and you think what happened in the last election, there's a challenge here in relation to planning for that. And Richard talked about the issue of closure of, of coal-fired power stations and how, as met with their coal, large parts of infrastructure exiting quickly is a significant challenge, particularly if you get, you know, they have got to have an impact. Um, see, our view would be, we looked at the data, and we don't think that Western Queensland rejected climate change. What they wanted was jobs. Mm. And the two aren't the same. And the Labor Party did an appalling job of differentiating those two. So when you come back to your point about how this, how this proceeds, I think the evidence is most likely that the current mechanism broadly are going to work pretty damn well um, as we move forward. Now, I think that, you so, know... So there won't be the need, is what you're saying? Well, I think, for example, specifically, if you look at closure of coal-fired power stations, three, giving people an obligation to give three years' notice is a waste of time because things will happen in those three years that 
you can't sort of legally put much binding uh, situations where you, you've got to give three years of notice if suddenly something's gone wrong, it's broken, and I can't fix it. Now, that sort of circumstance is better. There are other ways to manage that. Hazelwood tells us you don't do it that way. What you do is you start to think about putting some financial obligations in terms of when they actually do close and making sure they don't close early or later. And if, and if they do, then the financial obligations can be triggered. In terms of keeping them as long as we, as we want, that's a lot about some of the work that's being done today, I think, in relation to um, the, the pricing mechanisms around the technical issues are the retailer reliability obligation and the review of the, of the market structure to provide the pricing, to provide the incentives for people to continue to operate in the market and where they're making money. I and mean, right now, generators in Victoria are doing very well out of the market and they will do for a while yet and if they expand the transmission they'll export to New South Wales. So I don't, I don't see it as a major problem, to be honest, with a couple of small provisos that I mentioned. Okay. Richard, just briefly, and then really, we'll have time for one more question. So really quickly, I, I think that it's not a really good... <laughs> Leaving aside climate change, using a coal-fired power station as some kind of occasional reserve is a very, very costly thing to do. Not likely to work very well uh, and indicative that it probably should have been allowed to operate a little longer so that something renewable and gas-fired could be built to replace it permanently. You know, I'm more concerned about the, the fact that until a coal-fired power station closes, you want it to be really well maintained because if you want to really uh, uh, reduce public confidence into carbonisation, then the incentive that is always there to actually let it run down before it shuts could actually mean the lights go off in a very inopportune time and discredit the policy. So I do think there's quite a lot of trickiness in managing the exit of power stations where you want them to be in excellent condition until you don't need them anymore. And then unceremoniously they go and they never return, including to be a strategic reserve. Okay, that's a quick answer. Yes, sir, just a final question from you. Um, Michael Steindl. Um, at the risk of being... Uh, Branded dystopian, like the gentleman here, it's along the same sort of lines. That I think we're talking about a dream world here, in particular, I think your comments, Mr. Bolt, about it being a long, long road, um, about talking about uh, using fossil fuels, about CCS, which really isn't proven, it isn't practical. Um, I agree with your comments about hydrogen, but in reality, if we're not to lose well over six billion people and half of species, this has to be a lightning turnaround. We have to go far faster than, than you were talking about. And we have to face the climate crisis. Was Any there comments? a specific question? Um, well, <laughs> basically, um, challenge you on that, Mr. Walder. I just, I don't think you you're taking it seriously. Richard, it's okay. <laughs> uh, look, um, what can I say? The faster the better, but fast and sensible. And you've just got to take, you know, we've got to take communities with us. We've got to take, uh, a, a very large system and turn into something else. The quicker we can do it, the better, but it's, I think you underestimate, you might be underestimating just the size of the task. Investment-wise, innovation-wise, you don't want CCS, you'll get less hydrogen displacing gas for longer. I mean, you, you, you've got to keep all options open. But, but what is the technology, where is that at at the moment on CCS? Oh, look, the actual injection of carbon into deep southern aquifers is well established at millions of tonnes scale. It's already being done in various parts of the world. Uh, and we have got one of the best resources for that anywhere, which is in the Bass Strait. Right? And that's not underneath the township. No one's going to think they're about to be asphyxiated when the stuff comes to service, which it would never do anyway. Um, the main issue is the innovation required to get the hydrogen and the CO2 out of the coal. Now, that's not certain to happen, right? You're entirely right. I mean, I'm not suggesting this scenario that we, we presented is a plausible scenario. It's not a prediction of certainty. 
And, but the Japanese government has felt it, uh, felt it uh, justified to put 400 million into testing whether that can be done. And if it's not done here, it'll probably be done somewhere else. I don't think we should be thinking coal is bad and therefore it's bad in every application when it's all hands on deck. This is not an easy thing to do. It is all hands on deck would be my, est uh, my estimation. And if you don't want to do the CCS, it'll take even longer for your crisis to be resolved. I think um, in, in your notes um, to me, Richard, you said that it divides into, we tend to divide into two camps, the green camp and the brown camp, and it's going to take some time together to mix the olive camp. <laughs> well, except now the brown camp, but sort of yes, but the brown camp uh, is reactionary and it's in denial and it's quite happy to keep conventional coal-fired power stations being built just the most efficient. I don't support that. I'm, I'm suggesting that we do need the coal-fired out. We need to bring in the gas so that renewables can be built up and then in time, and the hydrogen from the coal, and in the end, we, we just say, look, thank you, fossil fuels, you've done your transition task and we're now on a renewable path. But my point is, it's a, if you think globally and you think about, you know, think about Russia and think about China and think about India and think about Africa, as well as South America, as well as the Western economies that we're most used to thinking about, just think about what that's going to take, where they all have to go through a similar kind of transition as we're talking about here, and sometimes from a much lower economic base. This is not a walk in the park, right? It's, and, and that's my point. I'd love to, I mean, I feel urgent, right? But I also think that realism has to, in a sense, temper the message. Otherwise, we'll create expectations that will, that will just destroy the credibility of what we do when, they, when we don't meet them. That was a great question to end on. Thank you very much. And, and obviously, this is a subject that we could be here until midnight. Um, but we won't do that to you all. Um, look, the, uh, the blueprint is on the Grattan website. Please go and download it and have a look. And I'm sure that if you've got any feedback um, for Tony or the rest of the panel, they'd love to, love to hear that. You can um, uh, email Tony. His email is, is on the website. And uh, please keep talking about this. I think the key here is, you know, go and talk to your Rotary Clubs. Go and join political parties and, and keep talking about this and try and um, build this coalition towards the blueprint that we've been hearing about this evening. And thank you very much for all of your expertise that you've brought in your questions. So uh, Chloe Munro, Richard Bolt and Tony Wood, uh, let's give them all a round of applause for... Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.